0: Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's
1: J-E-T-S. It took a wise spirit-led person to be able to speak into my life at that moment the circumstances would say you need to leave this is not for you you shouldn't be doing this but the circumstances did not need to define my future so that circumstance was no actually because you have experienced this this is where i need you to go deeper david i'm needing you to sit in this place and i need you to feel the pain because this is real And I need you to know that pain in a deep way so that I can use you to do something that no way you can do on your own.
0: Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram at Sam P. Coates and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. My guest this week is David Jordan. For close to 26 years, David has been leading Agape Child Services out of Memphis, Tennessee. Agape served approximately 3,000 children and families last year. I wanted to have a conversation with David to understand more about poverty, systems, challenges, and what true success looks like with this work. Additionally, we discuss that point when you want to throw in the towel, pivoting the organization to be proactive versus reactive, the power of trust when building relationships, and more. Just a quick note, real quick, there's some spots on this episode where there's some background noise. I'm sorry about that. We tried to edit it out, but overall, it's not there the whole time. Just wanted to give you a heads up when you hear it, that it might come in and out. Please enjoy my conversation with David Jordan. David Jordan Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to matthaga.com that's m-a-t-t-h-a-a-g-a.com and contact them when you contact matt tell him i sent you hey everybody i have one last quick cool company to tell you about are you like a majority of americans who love the idea of working from home when you want to if you do then i bet you'll like to check out havenspaces.org Haven Space lets you design the outdoor office of your dreams, but we make it easy and build and ship directly to you. Go to havenspaces.org, that's H-A-V-E-N-S-P-A-C-E-S.org to learn more and see how to connect with us. Full disclosure, I do own this company, but I'm willing to put it out here on this podcast because I know it'll make your life better, and they look pretty awesome too. Now we're going to get back to the show. David, great to see you.
1: Hey, Sam, it's good to be with you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Have you been working from home? You know, the, the vast, vast majority of my time has been at home. Uh, at Agape, we, we very quickly said we're going to keep our families and our staff safe while staying aggressive with the mission. So, yes.
0: So, when did you make that call? I mean, I know it happened mid, late March, but just curious, when did you
1: exercise that decisiveness? We, we we were quick. Uh, it was actually uh, Friday, I believe it was March 14th, and so it was the week that everything was coming out. and, and we, we were trying to be proactive and say let's let's be wise and good for our staff families, and let let's stay let's stay aggressive with the mission. So so we called that. I remember sending the email out on, on Friday. I think it was March 14th that that we made that call.
0: Wow, were y'all advanced and set up from a
1: technology standpoint? You know, all the staff have laptops and connectivity. And uh, so, I mean, there are some things that we had to do, but generally we, we were in a pretty good place to be able to make that transition. I mean, there, like most places, uh, it, you know, there were some bumps, you know, in the first month or so. I mean, we, we went quickly to we have a, about 125, 130 staff. We have a, a, an every Thursday staffing and devotional, and we quickly went to the Zoom environment because we knew we had to, you know, be with each other, we had to connect and be in communication, kind of feel each other's heartbeat. So so yeah, so we we made the transition pretty quick.
0: Wow. I know of some similar size organizations and smaller that are just coming to mind. And I remember kind of being on the fence back and forth Mm -hmm. at this time that we're talking about and how frustrating, you know, that was to themselves and then also to the people on their team or even educators in schools trying to be patient, but then also be decisive because it was stressful for teachers, how they did their planning. And, right. you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about y'all being decisive on the front end and how you thought through it, because it seems like it would have been easy to be patient. And then you kind of just keep kicking the can down the road. Obviously hindsight's always 2020, but that's why I asked you those questions.
1: Yeah. And, you know, serving a, a predominantly African-American Hispanic population, uh, having a staff that's predominantly persons of color. We also are very sensitive to how, you know, even early on in the pandemic, how that is has and does impact, especially persons of color. And so 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 we wanted to be wise, we want to be caring, we wanted to live out our name, agape, love, and and we said, and, and we've got to go hard and our families need it. We need to come and, and come hard in terms of serving and doing it well. So so yeah, so so we made it and my board was very much on board. So so we we turned the corner pretty quickly.
0: Can you talk about maybe a couple of things that y'all did or pivoted to to touch, to affect, to connect with the communities that y'all serve that you just referenced, you know, when physical contact, physical communication a lot of times was cut out. How'd y'all navigate that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So, Sam, we we lead what's called a place-based strategy. So we we go to the places that people live. And so it's very relational. So our staff are embedded in apartments where, where our families live or live in around those areas. Our staff are embedded in 17 schools where our kids go to school. Uh, we're embedded in churches. We're a faith-based organization. So where, wherever it would be natural for our families to be, that's where our staff office. So it's meant to be very relational. So, so that part was really hard because we said we, we want to keep the relationship. And so before we were able, and, and we did like other organizations, we, we got out over 800 computers to 800 families with connectivity, with training. But even prior to that happening, staff are on their phones, doing, doing, you know, any kind of level of connectivity without doing person-to-person and so we early on said we need to know where our families are at and what their needs are. And so we asked at our staff calling and asking. We had some scripted questions, you know, how are you with your job? What about food? What about utilities? What about your kids? Obviously, at that point, school had been shut down, so school was not a factor. And, and so we, we've done that at different junctures early on in the summer. Did it again at the end of the year. You know, what are your needs and how they changed and how do we best respond and how do we voice and advocate on your behalf to others of power, with resource, and support.
0: So the families, I I saw 3,000. Is that the total number of families that y'all served and contacted last year?
1: Yeah, we we served a little over 2,000 families, uh, which equated to several thousand individuals. Uh, We we have a a holistic, we call it, it's called two generations, serving both parent and child. So the whole family uh, in a poverty-fighting, poverty-reduction work. And so everything we're about is, trying to fight poverty. And so, uh, so yeah, so we served nearly 2000 families last year in 2020.
0: So these are families, is it either a single mother, single father, husband and wife and their kids, or can you describe the makeup of the family itself?
1: Yeah. So, so it's a whole range in, in terms of family constellation. We're in Fraser, Whitehaven, Hickory Hill, a large number of, of single parent adults who are parenting uh, women, some fathers, some uh, mother-father together uh, can be multi-generational, grandparents, aunt, uncle, you know, others in the household. And so and, and also uh, you have some doubling and tripling up until so you have families living with each other for a variety of reasons, economic and otherwise. And so. Uh, so, yeah, so, so the constellation is, is a range of those uh, with, with children, obviously, birth to 18 and even beyond living in the home.
0: And so the poverty and anybody beneath the poverty line that fits that description is somebody
1: that y'all serve. So our model has been, Sam, we we are going into under-resourced communities with under-resourced and are under-resourced. Most often families that we're working with, they're in apartments and surrounding area. So by by federal definition, they live in poverty uh, or dire poverty. And so our goal is, um, to not have you try to fit into a program. So we, we raise dollars and do what's called braided funding. And so we put the different dollars together so that if Sam or David or our families were to say, you know, can you help me with food? Can you help me with a job? Can you help me with my third grader in school? I've got a two-year-old and I'm concerned whether they're going to be ready for school or not. Or I've gone through significant trauma and we need counseling. And so we have... Raise dollars and have braided funding, so no matter what the matter of family might bring up, we don't want to say no. We want to say, "How can we serve? How can we come alongside Agape or one of our 150 partners?" And we will serve you. So, so we use what's called a no wrong door. Whatever door you come through, saying "I need help," we want to meet you right there.
0: Curious, could you talk about some of the systems and processes that you and your team have put into place? Because there's a lot of variables there. That's a lot of communication. I would imagine sometimes people want to communicate with you or your staff in ways and at times that are not always easy to control. How have you and your team been able to build out your organization where you're able to serve so many people with so many different ways of communication with so many different needs?
1: We believe in place. We believe in proximity. And so one of the systems, as you mentioned, what we believe critical is that we are where the people are at. We are creating and developing trusting relationships. And so relationships are critical to any of the system work. And so do I trust you? Do I think do you, do I think you mean good to me? Have you shown that? What does my neighbor say about you? And so so the, the level of trust that we are building and continuing to try to build is, is a critical, I mean, it is just the epicenter and the core. So through that, uh, when I call you on the phone, when we use our computers, when we're connecting with, will you come to the school and have conversation with the teacher in the school system, maybe you do or do not have a great relationship with, or I'm trying to help you around employment. And there are a range of things around employment that you need to do that maybe have been unsuccessful for you in the past. Do I trust you that you mean well and good for me? And can we walk this out? And so we have staff called connectors. They connect relationally. And they connect with the resources you need and want to be able to be where you're trying to get to, to your dreams, your, your aspirations. And so from a system standpoint, it really is more organic. It's the relational kind of equity. And then can I walk with you to get to and through the systems to get to where you're trying to get to?
0: How have you learned how to live in ambiguity with your role and with all the moving parts and it seems like you're really good at fundraising, but obviously there's a lot to the organization itself. But I'm curious when you were talking about all these different needs in these communities and the stress and the adversity, the pain that all of us have, but then also the challenges and the pain that gets magnified with poverty as well. So if something like falls through the cracks or a grant program falls through, or if you have been fortunate with a big gift, and you know, you're seeing opportunity, etc. How do you live with ambiguity or things that might fall through the cracks or good things that need momentum that you don't really have it all tightened up in, in your head yet and just kind of operate when there's so much at stake with the people that you serve?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I have a, a leader that says we, we live in the land of ambiguity. And uh, so, so it's interesting you'd use that word. And and so that is uh, somewhat just inherent with kind of what we do. Uh, We're not cookie cutter. And and one thing that's really important to this is we ask our families in the community, tell us what's working well and tell us what's not working well. What stands in the way of your being successful? And so so the voice of the people help kind of uh, break through a lot of that ambiguity, although there's still a lot of it. And so we, we have been in the communities now for 12 years or near, nearly 12 years in all, all three communities. So we have a longstanding history of building trust, asking these questions, and our families have said, historically, David, if you wanna help the most, help me around safety. So this is not just MPD safety. It could be a range of matters in terms of safety and trauma. Also said, Help us with education for our kids. And for some, they knew I need help in supporting my child. For some, it's the school my kid's going to is a low-performing school. Does the piece of paper they get mean anything or not? Help us with that. Help us with work, work and workforce development. I've got a job, only over 50% of our families are working. They're underemployed. They're not making 15 or $20 an hour that would help them get out of some of the places and, I'm, and I use that almost figuratively, but some of the places they're wherever they're wanting to go to meet their dreams. Uh, we have families that say, help us around housing. And so land and housing, affordable housing is critical around poverty. Our families know that. And so so those are some of the big rocks. There's a lot of other things. And so we have partnerships with nearly 150 different organizations, nonprofits, corporate churches, etc. And so what we're trying to bring to the table is. Sam, tell me what is it you and your family need. And if you say something that, you know what, this is something we need, we need, and maybe we don't have a response to that. Part of our job as an organization is who in, in the world of Memphis and Fraser White Haven can help meet that need, who can come alongside and support that? And so so we wrap services around, we look for resources, and, and our, our goal is we want to address anything that you would raise up that is a barrier to your being successful. So we do live in ambiguity. We do have, you know, fundings coming in and out. Our commitment to our communities continues to be uh, we are not backing down. Uh, we, we have now our second campaign, which is a $4.5 million. We've got about a million more dollars to raise. Part of it is around sustainability at this very point of when you lose a grant, when you lose some money, what's going to fill the gap? Well, we, we, are, we, are putting, we have a sustainability fund to help fill some of the gap there so that we don't back down in terms of what we're providing alongside of our families.
0: Yes, sir. This may seem like a weird question, but it's helpful to really understand you and each guest because your work, who you are, is, is such a pivotal part of the organization mm-hmm. that you lead. So I was just curious with all these things, what time do you get going in the morning and what time do you shut it down? Because it
1: sounds like a lot. Uh, if you'd ask my wife, she'd say I never shut down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I was up at four thirty this morning. And I used to be a late night owl. Uh, that that's that's lessened a little. But uh, I've got a team that's passionate about the work. We, we we try to have reasonable boundaries because we're in it for the long haul and it's a marathon. It can be long hours, but but it's what we're passionate about. We, we believe what God has called us to be about.
0: Have you operated with that intensity this entire time?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a strange bird, but yeah, I have.
0: <laughs> Are you from Memphis, Tennessee?
1: Not originally, but but Memphis is home. Uh, we, we came here in 95, so this is, I've started my 26th year here at Agape. Uh, grew up in, was born in Middle Tennessee, really reared in North Alabama in uh, Decatur near Huntsville. And then got my college degree in Nashville.
0: Right. What makes you drawn to work in the manner that we're talking about and be a part of the organization that you're serving with such intensity in a city that you did not grow up in?
1: Uh, my faith is very important. we believe that uh, back in 94, 95, that God called us to come to Memphis, not to be any kind of savior. And I, I think it was more for us to learn and grow and him and for Memphis to, to impact our lives, which it has in a beautiful way, all three of our kids uh, that have grown up here and it's changed their trajectory and, and then how they even think by virtue of that, you know, one of the life, you know, we all have kind of life questions. Um, and one of the life questions I grew up with, there's a whole story behind this, was, um, am I good enough? Mm-hmm. Am I lovable? Am I acceptable? Will you, will you love me for who I am? And so, so, you know, as a young boy and a man, that young man, I, I didn't know really what all that meant. I think I do think that's part of my drive. I Think God is, uh, as He's given me healing in that, has used that to say, you know, David, I have healed you. I've given you healing. I'm not, I'm not fixed, but I've given you healing. Now turn that to others who have their own life questions. Everybody has them, and uh, I'll be, I'll be the healing, not you, for them. So, so that is a driver for me. Whatever our own life experience is, can become our our greatest nemesis, or it can become the greatest, almost jet engine fuel that that leads us to where we're at and where we're going. And uh, God, God has used it as as jet engine fuel for me.
0: Have you ever put much thought to why it is the things that drive us the most are a direct result, a lot of times, of the experiences that we've been through or the things that we've enjoyed the most in more formative years. And if you don't agree with that, I'd love to hear what you think. And if you do agree with that, have you ever thought about why it is that way?
1: You know, we we live in a time of information and getting on Google and getting lots of data and, and, and all that has its place. What what I really know is what I have experienced. What, it, what is, what what is life been? I think, and I do believe that, uh, your life experience can be your greatest teacher, or it can be the boulder that, that rolls on top of you and can crush you, depending on who's around you and what's available to you and resource. So so yes, I believe most people come out of their life experience, and that gives much of the predetermination of who they are, where they're going, and what they do by virtue of their own experience and how healthy they are and who's around them. And most folks doing the very best they can. So I know for me, that is no doubt true. I, I'm not doing this work because I'm some great guy or give me applause or pat me on the back. I come to it as a broken man who is a broken young boy who I received healing, still broken. And and God and others have used that in ways that I would not I'd have never scripted this for my life. And at 25, there's no way I would have said this is what I'd be doing and doing it for this long.
0: Yes, sir. Was there a certain age from a career standpoint where you feel like you, you kind of recognize this mm. very clearly where it started, where you started to grasp it the way you just described it?
1: You know, when I was um, 25, 26, somewhere in that age range, and I was working with the state of Tennessee with the Department of Human Services. It was my first kind of full-time job in this career. I was investigating child abuse and neglect. I was green behind the ears going to homes where there's alleged abuse or neglect of children. And I'm actually coming up on the anniversary Uh, in April. uh, There was a a young boy and uh, I I, I was on, it was back in the beeper days uh, and I was on call and, and um, I was about to pass that beeper to somebody else. You, You held it for one day and you gave it to someone else for emergency situations. Well, uh, I got it just two minutes before five o'clock or something like that. And I was to go see a young boy named Corey, he's four years of age at Vanderbilt hospital. I was in Nashville at that point. The short story is, uh, Corey had been beaten, uh, to the inch of his life. Literally. I saw him in the hospital. He was unconscious. I mean, I just, I, just, I didn't know what to do. I'd never seen anything like that. And I've been doing the job for a while. Uh, Probably fortunate for Corey, he died the next day. He had been beaten that severely and that badly. It shook me to the bone, so much so that um, I thought, "This is not for me. This, this is I. I can't do this. I, I, I don't have. I don't have it in me to do it." And I had, I had someone who spoke into my life who said, "David, um, you do have what it takes, and someone needs to stand in the gap for the Corys of the world." And I'll walk with you. Who was that? His uh, older gentleman, and um, otherwise I, I would have been done. And uh, I needed wisdom. I needed. I needed insight, and I needed someone to help me grapple with myself and then see outside of myself. And uh, that was the turning point for me.
0: Well, but before that, did you go to Belmont? Was it Belmont Lipscomb? Okay, Lipscomb
1: down the street. <laughs> did you have? Five majors? <laughs> uh, not, I, I, my major was in Bible, okay. and, and I had a lot of minors. And, and all that meant, I had a minor in Greek, I had a minor in math, I had a minor in business and psychology. All that that meant was David was a confused boy trying to figure out what in the world am I supposed to be doing, and so I was poking around a whole bunch.
0: Were you valid Victorian of your high school? Uh, no,
1: I was top 6% or something like that, but no.
0: I mean, I, I was confused, but I didn't
1: get four minors. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just not a very sharp or smart boy. I, I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes. So you got
0: the job with human services, you said, in Nashville. Yeah. Out of postgraduate, correct?
1: Uh, actually, undergraduate. And so, yeah, yeah. And so I had, I had my degree, actually a degree in Bible. And I never since I was called to preach or pastor. The best I could come up with was um, I was to uh, help other people. And, uh, and so I was able to get, it took me a while because that's not a degree that uh, human services necessarily uh, hires around. And so while I was at DHS, I started my master's in social work.
0: And so you worked with them while you were getting your master's degree. And then after you got your master's, you came to Memphis.
1: Well, no, after that, I, I was just stayed in Nashville, worked with a residential program, uh, then worked with a big brother, big sister program, I got my licensure in social work, and then uh, it was 95, August of 95, that, that uh, we came to Memphis.
0: So really, you had that experience at the hospital was after you had graduated college and gotten your undergrad, and that was yeah. the defining moment that then caused you to go back and get your graduate degree, and then go into this career all in. Is, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was a real turning moment for me.
0: How'd you get to Memphis? How did Agape find you, and what was Agape
1: like when you got here? Yeah, so it, it's, a, it's kind of a funny story. Um, Agape had reached out to me in the, the mid-'80s, and so I was I was probably five, six years into my career at that point. Wanted me to consider coming as a social services director. Teresa and I came, my wife. Just didn't sense that the time was right, and it really wasn't. I was also um, in a, in a spiritual search, in uh, in informative period. It was it was beautiful, and um, and and I wasn't ready to leave. I don't think God was ready for me to leave at that time. Then ninety four, I got the call again from Agape, and they said, "We really want you to consider." And at this time, we want you to consider being the executive director. And so we came in. We were deep in prayer and consideration, and. And believed at that time that uh, for whatever reason, God wanted us to move. It, it was the strongest sense of calling that I had at that moment. So, so kind of matched with the story of Corey and how it marked me. We were marked in, in our coming here, believing in, in my wife who was a children's minister for over 20 years. And so it wasn't just about me. It was also Teresa and her work here. And so when we came here, Agape was doing foster care and adoption, and uh, some folks would know us for that. We did that for 25 years. We still do some of that. But uh, where we have gone is rather than waiting for kids and families to come into a system like foster care, we've said, let's go upstream and let's go into the communities where those families live before they come into a system like foster care.
0: Can you talk about how that decision was made?
1: It, 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 it occurred over about a 20 year period as we were recruiting foster families. There are always more kids. There's probably we'd have three, four, five times the number of kids referred to us needing a foster home, than we would have foster homes available. And we recruited and recruited and recruited and just never could even come close to matching. And and, and it it just, I was just struck with what if we could go upstream. And we could start working with kids and families rather than waiting for them to come to us in the system. And some kids just have to. And that's just part of it. But there are a lot of kids that don't and who can stay in their own home. And so so we, we began on a journey. And the, my board was very faithful in that, saying, you know, we're staying in the same mission. We're just enacting the mission programmatically in different ways. We'll still, still do some foster care and adoption, We'll be, but we'll be working with the same families if we go upstream and work with them before they come into that system. And so so that has been a huge move of Agape. Identity wise, that was hard for a lot of people because they said, ah, you're the foster care and adoption agency. What are you, what are you doing in Fraser? What's that about? And once people started understanding that these are the same kids and families, generally speaking, we're just wanting to walk with them before they enter into a system like foster care or any other kind of system. So it has been a beautiful Move. It's been a hard move. Organizations do not do not like change. I have had a supportive and great board and staff, and God has blessed that. And so we believe for Agape. It doesn't mean it's for every organization doing uh, whatever work they're doing, foster care or otherwise. But for Agape, that's exactly where we're supposed to be.
0: When you talked about the call, and you talked about one time getting the call and not feeling it was the right time, but then it happened again. Mm. That's a very spiritual experience because it transcends just earthly logic from a rational brain. So for somebody listening that might not believe in God or a spiritual relationship, I'm sure it's going to sound ludicrous, but for those of us that do believe in God, there's that element of the divine and that spiritual connection that sometimes it feels very hard to trust and to believe in, and it's easy to always, at least I'm speaking for myself, Mm -hmm. to always want to try to go to rational thinking and logic. And through faith and growth and a a more intimate relationship, it seems like you grow more in that area, but not a preacher here. I'm just talking about my own life and trying to flesh it out. But I'm curious, how have you seen that call or other situations where you feel like doors were closed and you couldn't explain it and you had to accept it and get over it or then doors opened and you weren't expecting those either. I'm just curious from, from your life standpoint, how would you describe how that's happened to you? Or then how do you also think about that with things coming ahead in the future?
1: It's a good question. Um, I really tried not to be overly defined by circumstances. I think circumstances have their place, but I think if you're reading life by every circumstance, it can almost be like the wind that blows and it will blow you around, like being in the ocean and the ocean just moving you back and forth. But circumstances have their place. As a, for me, as a person of faith, I do believe that God gives clarity for me and others uh, by being in, in the word, his word by being in community, by being connected to him, and listening to others who have wisdom and insight, just like that gentleman that came alongside me uh, when I was about to kick out and say, I'm, I'm done, I, I can't do this kind of work. I'm not in this to see little boys and girls die. It took a wise, spirit-led person to be able to speak into my life at that moment. The circumstances would say, You need to leave. This is not for you. You shouldn't be doing this. Uh, But the circumstances did not need to define my future. So that circumstance was, no, actually, because you have experienced this, this is where I need you to go deeper, David. I'm needing you to sit in this place. And I need you to feel the pain because this is real. And I need you to know that pain in a deep way so that I can use you to do something that no way you can do on your own. And so, so I don't know if I've answered your question directly, but, but that's um, for me, hearing wise counsel, spirit led counsel being in in a variety of ways and being centered to be able to do that uh, may or may not align with the circumstances, but will give clarity to the direction.
0: Yes, sir. And then let's say you're looking at hiring someone, a key position or a, key person for the board or an internal matter that not exactly sure how to decide on something, or maybe it's a new opportunity that came your way. How do you approach that to try to understand clarity on how to operate with conviction on the right thing for you or the organization that you're leading or your family all the same?
1: Yeah. So since we're talking about Agape, I'll continue in this vein. I challenged my board and the organization back in 2015 that we, if we're asking for generational change, then Agape needs to make a generational commitment. And so rather than a two, three, five-year strategic plan, which is the typical corporate model, I so said, what if we make an 18-year a generational commitment of our direction? And so it won't be a strategic plan with everything kind of built out of what, what all that means, but it says, this is the direction we're going as an agency and organization. And we did that in September of 2015, actually September 10, 2015. We have a document still that, that's a living document that says, this is the direction. Once that happened, then it made it easy because we believe we had clarity. of uh, This is the direction we were supposed to go. That made it easy then to make decisions of what is a yes and what is a no. And once we, uh, Sam, made that decision, God, frankly, has blessed Agape. I mean, we have tripled in size, not that size and and big is better, but we have tripled in size in the last four to five years. We have grown deeper in community. The level of impact that that we've been allowed to have has really increased. And so, what I find is when you're clear on, for me, where God would have you go, that doesn't change. And his consistency it does not change. So now I can make decisions, and it's pretty easy for me to say yes or no to a lot of things, and I stay in the vein or the flow of what we're about. So that sounds pretty simplistic. But what I find for a lot of organizations, families, they don't really know who they are. And without knowing who you are, you don't know where you're going. And, um and agape's never not always known that but we are we are very clear about who we are whose we are and we're very clear about this is the direction we're supposed to go so none of those things are questions for us anymore and so when funding opportunities programs other things come up we we have a pretty pretty somewhat simplistic way of saying okay will this meet this long-range generational matter that will this be good for the community and if it is we're going with it all, all gusto. if it's not we say no to it and and, we're, and and that's easy for us to do now.
0: What is that 18-year
1: goal? Uh, so it is uh, to go deep in the communities that we're in, Fraser Whitehaven, Hickory Hill. It's to keep the voice of the people in the center. And so as we have questions about direction, where do we go? First question is, what do the people say? What do the families and the communities themselves say? Would this be good for them? Is this something they want? Is this something they need? It includes this poverty reduction work, helping families be able to get to the place they're trying to get, To to be successful, to have joy, to uh, meet their dreams, if you will, and and it is also uh, the potential of scaling this work to other communities in Memphis and beyond. There are a lot of specifics uh, in between all that, but those are some of the, the the core pieces of saying: Can we move the needle of poverty in Memphis? Can we do it in a substantial way? Can we do it with lots of partners, including faith partners, and can we eventually do it larger in much more of Memphis and beyond? And so, so that's part of where we're going and we have been going.
0: Is that when you talked about the change from going more preventative versus post?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it started uh, back almost 20 years ago. and, and, And so it has been a progressive deepening of what all this means, but, but it is we, we've been in this course for nearly, well, not nearly, it's 20 years this year.
0: I saw some statistics and data before we started talking that poverty in the United States has actually decreased since 2007 through 2018. Is that statistic correct?
1: Overall, it has. The pandemic has backed up poverty, and so it's gotten worse in places. Now, with that, places of dire and deep poverty, it, it, like in Memphis. Since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, poverty actually has grown and increased and has grown uh, the level of it and, and even the, uh, geographically the size of it. And so there have been moments that it's improved, but overall th- that number can be a little skewing. Some pockets are true, but in Memphis, Detroit, some other communities like that, Poverty, it continues to be devastating.
0: Merely just looking at it from the data or what we just talked about, what is it about Martin Luther King being assassinated that caused that number to increase?
1: Uh, I I don't know that I would say it's causal to his assassination. I do believe the, the reason, obviously, he was in Memphis around economic mobility, around liberation, around systemic injustices. And that being stopped, at least in his personhood, has, has been huge and impactful on Memphis. Who has the voice, consistent voice, to address systemic injustices, poverty, uh, and all of the alike, and in scripture be called uh, justice and, and righteousness. Who is doing that? Uh, and, and as a faith-based organization. We are challenging churches, and especially white, predominantly white churches. What is our voice? What is the work? And so we're trying to equip those who would be able to have impact. And so King's assassination, uh, I would say, stalled some of the work. Some of the work has continued. But it also, if we don't see the poverty matters at a systemic level, we look at it just at an individual level, then we're missing just the prongs as some people will talk about escaping poverty, only 1% of those live, who, who are born into poverty in Memphis and other urban communities, but especially in Memphis, only 1%, 2.8% of those who are born in poverty in Memphis ever escape the prosperity in Memphis. Very few escape out well. And, and that's been a historic fact for some time. And so... Um, uh, King was trying to help us look at this systemically. Many times we want to talk about it at an individual level. Individuals have their responsibility, their accountabilities, but we've got to look at this at a systemic level. What are the things keeping families in poverty and not letting them out? Is
0: that safety, education, workforce development, housing, those things?
1: Yeah. I mean, so so our families know what the issues are. If 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 I am unsafe... If um, domestic violence and a range of matters are going on that keep me isolated, part of poverty, part of what poverty does is create isolation and disconnectedness, then then that clearly is an impactor. Uh, If I live in an impoverished community, if you just put a grid of where poverty is at and what are the the school performance levels, Uh, most of our families have children attending school that are the lower performing schools. If I'm, getting a, if I'm getting an education from a lower performing school with all of the hard work and they're doing, if they're under-resourced, they don't have the money to do what is needed, then when I get out of high school, does my piece of paper mean anything or not? Well, if my piece of paper doesn't lead me to be able to go to college or a two-year or some kind of vocational, then can I get to a job that makes $15, $20, and $25 an hour? Well, if I can't, I, but if I don't have transportation, then MATA doesn't run in my community well enough then how do I get to my job? Well, if I have all these traumas that I've experienced, as research would show, if I have multiple traumas, it impacts me as an adult throughout my life. Um, And so, I mean, the matters go on and on, and they layer on top of each other. It's not blaming statements, but it is. Many of the system matters that are holding our families where they're at, not letting them escape out of poverty. You studied psychology in undergrad, right?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. With trauma, how does that reinforce patterns and how does that play into what you
1: just said? So there's a lot of work done in what's called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences or exposures. And so uh, and this comes out of the medical field. So if people want to Google ACEs, uh, that they can look at that. There's a, a 10 questionnaire uh, on a Likert scale of different traumas. Uh, if you grew up hearing gunshot every day. If you were abused as a child, uh, if you were in a family that um, uh, one of the one or both of the adults left the home, and and there was divorce or breakup in that family, a range of different kinds of traumas. If you score, if you check uh, yes to four of those questions or more, then the research shows that uh, especially living that in that as a child affects biologically your brain development it affects you emotionally and socially. And so it could it could negatively impact you to be able to perform well in school. It could negatively impact you in terms of your, just your so, social emotional uh, ability. It can negatively impact you in terms of your relationship capabilities because of those factors. It can negatively impact you in terms of then, can you get a job, how do you get a job, and how do you interact on those jobs? And so just the, the impact on the brain development, those early stages, have huge impact and that trauma, and some would say it's as as if uh, being in a third world uh, or being in a war, if you will, kind of that post traumatic stress disorder that kids and families experiencing that every day, all day long for a week, two weeks, for their you know on end that that has huge impact on their own development. You know, one of
0: the things just growing up in Memphis, I just always felt like I heard that bootstrap. Saying, and I think about my own self when you were talking earlier. Where, me personally, over the last I'd say two years, I've experienced a ton of freedom. And I've been a Christian, I would profess Christ at least since high school. But, and I know Christianity and the Bible Belt is different than other parts of the country and other parts of the world. I'm not going to go there, but I just think about the renewal of your mind. And Mm -hmm. I think about the power of a therapist or the power of a psychologist. And I think about neuroplasticity and the rewiring of your brain. I think about addictions and and these things are so powerful. And just if you do have a job, make great money, whatever, that doesn't mean you're going to be happier. That doesn't mean that you don't have issues and it's powerful and it's informative and it creates... Conviction, just to hear and to be reminded again of holistically the needs that agape feels and the way that you've described it on really trying to get ahead of the curve towards not just reactionary but then also to to really kind of drive home with clarity mm. why things are the way that they are and why we miss those things, and how easy it is just to judge one another, yeah and so it's easy to kind of run this through even your own personal experience. And think mm-hmm. about the freedom that you have, you know, throughout your own life when your mind is renewed. And, you know, like the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I'll never forget somebody I look up to and respect greatly talking about that movie and how he felt like that was him at one point. And you watch that movie and I identify with that. I totally relate.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and I've been given a lot of privilege. And,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so it's just it's very clear how you laid that out.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think proximity to our neighbors, you know, one of the downsides to interstate is that uh, we just drive by and we we never see each other, and especially communities that are less resourced. And so one thing that we are uh, working and advocating, and do you know your neighbor? Before you have judgment, do you know the person that you're judging? Do you know that mom? Do you know that father? Do you, do you know what life must be like for that child? Do you know that? Can you come to know that? And without having proximity, without being near and around and experiencing, it does lead to judgment and it creates this divide that that I think brings no good and it hurts both sides. Hey,
0: everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time now more than ever? Traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with non-stop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets Jet Card. It gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms talking about the wage matter that we talked about earlier, $15 an hour versus less than that, what do you believe is the solution there? And what are some of the things that you feel like it's easy to not understand unless you are that person making eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 bucks an hour, or maybe if you are working more than 40, you're not getting paid overtime. Can you talk about that and how you see it in the solution?
1: Yeah, so, so imagine if you are a single mom or single dad and you've got three kids at home and you're living in Fraser, and you've got a little job uh, making minimum wage, 10 bucks, something an hour, your degree, whatever that is, or your education doesn't allow you to, to get much more. You're on, you receive TANF, which is Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, what we would call the old welfare check, food stamps, you're receiving support. You're receiving your ten care for health care because your because your employer doesn't you don't have enough hours and they don't pay for health care, and so you begin trying to get out and uh, you start getting a job making twelve dollars. You may get a job making thirteen dollars. Well, that begins counting against you, and so you're trying to get out of the hole and you're trying to get where you want your family to be, and uh, your benefits on your the old welfare check go down. Your food stamps, uh, what's called SNAP now, go down. Uh, Your health insurance could be impacted as well. Uh, Your car, you don't have insurance, or if you do, it may not be functioning well. And so transportation's an issue. And so the system is set up in a way that unless you can leapfrog over at least $15 to $20 an hour, then this, uh, what some people call a cliff benefit. And so you have these benefits. You have the the check you receive every month. You have the food stamps. You have other benefits. And unless you can get enough money and earn enough, that that system will keep sucking you back because it'll decrease what you what you're receiving from them to match whatever money you have. So you're not getting out of the hole. And so so it, it, that's an ongoing, persistent issue. What we're working on uh, with number of partners is um, can we create Uh, career pathways. And so say you want to be in IT, say you want to be in uh, the healthcare world, say you want to be, pick pick a field. Can we help create a career pathway to healthcare? You might begin as a CNA, uh, a certified nursing assistant. That'll make about 10 bucks an hour. That's not going to get you out of poverty at all, but you want to become an RN long-term. Well, Agape is uh, seeking funding and securing some of it, but seeking more funding to say, what if you had an apprenticeship with Methodist, LeBron, or Hospital, and that apprenticeship is a paid apprenticeship where you're making at least fifteen dollars an hour while you're doing it, thirty to forty for thirty to forty hours a week, so that you're actually receiving pay while you're learning the job, and you're getting experience to give you a leg up to be able to be able to move up into out of the CNA into whatever the next. And if you're needing education, education is being made available to you as well. While you're doing that, did we forget about childcare and how you address childcare? What about transportation? Because MATA may or may not run at the times that you have to be in employment. So we're having to wrap around all these kind of resources around families. And so as we do that, we've seen 40% of our adults that we work with be able to get to a job of $15 an hour or more. I just mentioned only uh, less than 3% of families in poverty ever leave poverty into prosperity. We're seeing uh, on a quarterly basis, just this past quarter, October, November, December, uh, over 6% of the families we worked with in that quarter moved beyond poverty. Work's not done, but there's still work to be, you know, but they are making movement and progress in the right direction.
0: Did you say 60% or 6% in that quarter?
1: Yeah, 6%. And so while that doesn't seem like a lot, Less than three percent ever escape poverty in their lifetime, and so so this is a longer move, and it, it's how how deeply the systemic uh, matters of poverty are embedded in just holding folks in, in their place. And so so in that this past quarter, and, and we've been matching that anywhere from six to up to ten percent each quarter. COVID has had a negative impact in way in terms of hurting families, uh, and so October, November, December about 6.5% of our families were able to move beyond poverty that we're working with. And so, so it is, this continued. And so what we need are partners of uh, companies saying, yes, I'll give access to folks who might want to uh, get into medical field, might want to get into IT, might want to get in a range of different ways that have job potential and earning potential of at least $15, if not 20 or more, to be able for their family, for the dignity of a person, for their joy and what they're looking for in uh, Agape is coming alongside those families and saying, we're going to wrap around because there are a lot of matters that can come up while that's happening that can knock you back down. Transportation, child care, uh, all these other kind of factors that, that can impact, you know, being able to kind of get to those places. So so that that's the kind of work that we're doing that we believe is successful, but it's going to take some key leaders uh, with us. And we have the Chamber of Commerce has locked arms with us. Methodist Leviter Hospital has locked arms with us. Governor Lee in the state of Tennessee. And so, so we are engaging a lot of churches in Memphis. And so churches that we're working with, indigenous to those communities and others. So we're locking arms with a lot of key partners. And, and so we are aggressively trying to move forward in this hard work. But it, it really is a matter of togetherness to do this.
0: From a national standpoint, do you feel these things repeat themselves. What I mean by that is, I think Memphis is the hundredth, maybe largest, but let's say other metro areas that are 600,000 and up. Do you feel like their challenges, the organizations like Agape that are doing great work there over and over again, do you feel like it falls under these core things that you just laid out and we're discussing right now?
1: Um, you know, every community is different, but I will say for Fraser, Whitehaven, and Hickory Hill, those core areas of safety, education, jobs, workforce development, housing, family stability, and having the sense of hope, hopefulness in the center is core in those three communities. I generally hear that in, in other cities as well. And so I think these, these are some of the core matters. And part of the problem is That some will say, well, let's deal with education, or let's deal with jobs, or let's deal with trauma, or let's deal with housing. Uh, Let's deal with churches and hope in the sense of if you don't do them all together, working in harmony, then for the family, you're not helping them get out, if you will. You're not helping them get to the places for mom, dad, auntie, uncle, 12th grader, 7th grader, 3rd grader, 2-year-old.
0: How does this work on the wage piece unless something was passed from a federal standpoint? I'm assuming that's just the way that it would completely, or I don't know really the relationship on that between federal and state in this specific thing, but is there hope unless something nationally was done? I mean, I guess there's always hope, especially with talking to you. Yeah. But if corporations stock prices, payroll costs, all those things, capitalism in a, in a, in a private market, capitalism in a public market, especially public companies, etc. How do you see all that playing out in reality? Or do you see grants, subsidies, things that you're describing, alliances through hospital systems and things that you've talked about, the chamber? Is it just going to kind of be people locking arms inside of the system that is already there? Or do you ever see something changing from a macro standpoint?
1: Yeah, there's conversation going on about urban cities and and out of the pandemic, you know, what are the key factors and the levers? I would agree that uh, private, public, and philanthropic are are the three levers that have to work in unison together. And so um, uh, Agape uh, does secure quite a bit of public funding from federal, state, and other governments. We believe those dollars are critical to help around workforce development jobs and having dollars to be able to put on the table for apprenticeships and, and some of those kind of things. We believe the private sector, nonprofits, churches, uh, other group, such groups are critical in terms of the community and the families themselves in the center of the work. We believe philanthropic work is is critical as well. And so the philanthropic dollars that come in to fill in where other fundings don't match. And so it, it really is a braided, you know, it, it is not kind of a, kind of here. Here's the magic lever. It is a braided work together. Now, are the matters that happen in D.C. or that happen in Nashville or any other capital? Are those critical? Yes. And are we having some advocacy voice around those? You bet. But is that going to deter me or us in the work? No way. And so, you know, binding together with the private public and philanthropic world to be able to say, okay, let's create these, uh, let's have dollars, let's have resources, let's have partnerships, let's do the work on the ground, and let's be connected to what's happening at the 30,000 level foot to be able to make impact so that we have relationships with CEOs and organizations in the healthcare, the IT, the, uh, all the different markets in terms of employment, and let's create these kind of pathways. And we have some of them are already in place. And so, uh, so is what happens in D.C. and Nashville and other places important? You bet. Uh, if it doesn't always turn the way we need to, is that going to hinder us or stop us? No. So, uh, the, the need, the mission, the, the the personhood of our families and their heartbeat and their need, their desire, their God-given desire uh, and right. Is too important and too critical. And so, um, yeah, charge the hill.
0: This may be too blunt of a question. If so, I can edit it out, but I'm curious. It sounds like you're very determined and your organization's very determined. Throughout these last 26 years, have you ever hit a point where you maybe thought about not doing it anymore or something was too frustrating or painful that it just caused you to wonder if it was worth it?
1: You know, it's a good question. Um, I have never thought I'm done. I've never thought I'm throwing in the towel. I think back to the earlier conversation, the sense of calling and purpose is, is, has been so strong. Now, I have asked, God, is this really, is this it? Or why, why, why this now? I mean, in 26 years, I've seen a lot of ups and downs. And so I've asked questions of why or for how long or is are we headed the right direction? Do we need to veer? Well, help me understand. And again, the circumstances don't need to define who we are, but need to understand what they. You know, what do they mean in this context? So uh, I've had I have a staff, a board, a leadership team, executive team, that's uh, just a powerhouse. And so the encouragement in uh, with faith leaders and other partners. We, you know, we're not perfect. Uh, we have our ups and down days, but overall, we, we, we remain charge of the hill. And being with our neighbors and our families, being in relationship with those that you love, who not only are you providing, they're also providing. I mean, it's a mutual relationship. We're learning and growing together. And so when it's personal, when it's relational, when it's engaged at that level, uh, there really isn't any other option. It's what we want, and it's what we do.
0: When you talked about ups and down days, sounds like perspective, but I'm curious, do you realize that at the time or do you kind of go to bed just out of sorts and you wake up and you're like, all right, we'll go at it again. I'm, I'm just curious, what do you think that's like for you and your key leaders just living with that humanity, but then also maintaining that desire to keep executing the mission?
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I put my pants on just like everybody else. and so i've I've got man, I've got my moments and um, and so that's it's really important to have a we've got a strong leadership team, an executive team and uh, and so they being in community with each other and and having a healthy community with each other to to lift you up uh, sometimes to to push in and say, we, we got to go harder. This, it's not hard enough but but in those down moments to to lift up and and remind you know who whose work this is and and what our role is. Uh, there's something that God provides for me. It is sleep. The next day, I always see it differently. And so uh, I may go to bed at night. and I may be discouraged on this particular day. And I've had plenty of those days. There is something about sleep. Uh, it is new every morning.
0: We've talked about your staff a little bit. We've talked a lot about you, and I feel like got to understand you very well. What do you think drives your staff when you think of some of the key people that come to your mind or the people that do the best work that you partner with, what do you think drives them? And what do you think makes them so committed to this work? Briefly, did they have experiences like you did at that hospital that day? Or what do you think that looks like?
1: You know, there's, there's research that show those that come into this field at least 70% because come because of their own personal life experience. So it's not unusual that many come because they have some experience that drives them. And most often it's a negative experience. Sometimes it's a very positive experience, but sometimes most often it's a negative experience. We, we hire intentionally from communities that we serve in as much as we can. And so we have some number of staff who have lived. I mean, they have the lived experience and they live the experience. Being a Christian based organization, almost always when I do orientation, staff say that they're they're drawn to our mission through that lens. And we're very overtly, we don't make other people have to do that, those that we walk alongside, uh, it, all that's on volition and choice. But we're very clear of who we are, and it's a driver. Every, every uh, Thursday we have a staffing and devotional time together, and it's a celebration. I mean, folks go around and say, let me brag on somebody. Let me tell you what I saw. On the, and so we have 120 people on a Zoom call Uh, We we have a devotional thought and time in prayer together. And so so that's part of our culture. And so so there are those who are drawn to say, you know what, I want to live out who I am with the gifts and abilities that I have as well. And so I can kind of bring my whole person to the table at Agape.
0: You talked about some national possibilities or some plans to continue on the work you're doing here, but then also use what you've learned, that, that success and apply it elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you feel y'all can make an impact and why y'all are positioned and able to do it based off of what you've what you've done and what Agape's done for close to 50 years.
1: Yeah, and, and we are we are early in this this conversation and this thinking around scaling. We are I'm, I'm told we are the largest or one of the largest uh, poverty fighting agency models that use this two generation whole family model in in the US and so, so we we've graciously received some attention from a national perspective, and and so that's led to number of cities and groups who have reached to us, uh, asking us would we consider, you know, consulting, training, providing support in some kind of way, and so so we we are we are monitoring, we're watching that, uh, we're actually going through a strategic, we have nine strategic questions we're asking ourselves as an organization right now. One of those is about scaling. And uh, what does that look like? What does that mean to agape? So we're we're on the f- early front end. We sense that's that is a part of what what will be uh, our mission and part of the growth of the work, especially as a faith based organization, which makes kind of our work in this space a, a little unique. But it doesn't have to be just with faith based organizations. We work with a lot of non faith based groups uh, in terms of our partnerships. And so uh, so so right now we we sense the scaling is coming. We're being asked to do that. We are intentionally hesitating and holding back. Uh, we believe we're at least a year or two away from really launching into that if that's something we are to do. So, so we are we're in a discernment phase around scaling.
0: When you think about the families that you all serve and you think about the families that are part of that statistic that have been able to get out of poverty, I think you share close to 40% of the families you all have worked with. Did I get that right? Was that 40%?
1: the 40% who have uh, earned a wage of $15 an hour or more.
0: Right, which is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. What are some of the core behaviors or the core responses that these families have when y'all come into their life or they come into y'all's life to where they're actually able to, to take advantage of the opportunities that y'all give and then y'all create that connection and that serves them well? maybe lay that out. What, what do you see on their, on these people's end that really works for them and their family and the generations to come after them?
1: You know, being in the community is critical. Being relational is critical. Uh, there, there I, I can tell you story after story, there's, there's one story of a, of a mother who had uh, two children in a school in Fraser, uh, and her boys uh, in elementary school, uh, was just, I mean, they're just kicking up a fuss and, and, I mean, they were they were just tearing up the day in, in that school. Well, one of our partners, uh, one of our partners in that community, Pastor Floyd with Pursuit of God Church, uh, who, who at that time was directly across from that school, his church building, and so as a partner, the school called and said, uh, Pastor Floyd, can you come do something? We, we, we're not sure what to do. That this mom is just upset. Her boys are just blowing out. So he said, Yeah, send them over. So she came over, and uh, just mad as a hornet. Just just. I mean, and, and he, he said, uh, what, what can I do for you? And she said, I don't know that you can do anything for me. I mean, there's no trust there. He said, can I pray for you? And she said, yeah, if you want to pray for me, go ahead. And so he prays for her. And they come out of that, and uh, he said, what, what, what is it you need right now? And uh, she said, well, I need food right now. He said, well, we've got a partnership with Agape. and a lot of others, but Agape is the leader in this. Uh, and, and they have a partner that does food. You can go right down the hallway, and you can get food right now. Said, well, oh, okay. well, I appreciate that. He says, "There's something else I can do for you? She said, well, my kids are not doing well in school, and they need help. He said, I heard about that. Agape has staff in those schools. They call them connectors. They could work with your two boys, and I'm sure I could set that up. Would that, would that be okay? Well, if you think they could do that and could help, I'm sure that'd be all right. What else can I do for you, ma'am? Well, I lost my job. Can you help me with a job? Well, yeah, with Agape, we have these career fairs and, and we have employers and relationships. I bet we can help you with that. What, what happened with your job? She said, you really want to know? I said, yeah. Well, I just got carjacked. My boys are in the car and the trauma that my boys have experienced, have just messed them up and they're having a hard time in school. And it, it, it's got me. I'm, I'm just mad. I'm upset. I, I'm having nightmares when I sleep. So I don't have employment, I don't have transportation, so I lost my job. And so I need a job. And she said, my boys need some help. Well, I know they're out of school right now. And they were with her by virtue of the experience they just had. She said, Agape has counselors, and they're upstairs. He calls it his upper room in the next floor up. And uh, he said, I could see if they could see them right now. She said, well, that's available. Okay. So he checked, and and we had two therapists available and, and saw them right there on the spot. And he said, uh, let me help you with that job and get back with you. Well, short of that, a uh, few days later, made some connections. She was able to get a job. She got one at $15 an hour. We worked out, we have a partnership with MATA and worked out transportation. She came back to the school just a few weeks later. And um, the school called Pastor Floyd and said, Pastor, you got to get over here. This mama's over here and you got to get over here. Well, he thought, oh, my goodness. He went back over there and they were just celebrating, high fine <laughs> and, and, she, and she was apologizing, saying, "I am so sorry for what happened. My life was upside down. I've been carjacked. My boys were not doing well. We weren't doing well in school. I lost my job. We didn't have food, and I, 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 I didn't know what to do. And I and 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 I've never and I've never been helped like this. So thank you. And so it built trust. It built connection, but more so." It, it built in life in her, her boys to believe that there's somebody that has good and goodness of their interests and their welfare for them.
0: Yes, sir. There is a man who I've actually had on this podcast, just look up to so much, I've worked with him and gone through some of the trainings and that he does. His name's Ken Utek. He's out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, and he, he works with a lot of organizations and et cetera, down here in Memphis and other parts of the country. But he talks about if you truly want to create change, you got to touch the person's heart and you just laid out those four things, the felt needs that she had, which created trust. Mm-hmm. And, um, that makes total sense. And I guess that's summarizes the pivot that y'all made to really create the impact that you do. And it seems very complicated, Mm-hmm. and a lot of moving parts but yep. it seems clear on why you're doing that and why your staff's doing that and then the impact that it's making
1: said well thank you so we wrap up
0: curious here we are in our approach in february almost a year with this pandemic but you've been 26 years in close to what are you looking forward to what do you have hope for what are some of the trends here in Memphis where you serve, but also nationally? What do you, What do you think is important that could be coming on the horizon?
1: I, I am excited about 2021. I'm hopeful of 2021. I'm very aware and very clear headed of the pandemic, and um, I mean, there's a long tail that that's going to impact our families. The 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 moratorium on rent and things like utilities that will that will have to come off at some point. And families will have to pay, and there are owners who, who need money as well. I mean, it's a two-sided thing. So, so the, uh, I think there's, there's a potential of a tsunami for our families coming that are living in under-resourced communities. And so, so I'm very aware of that. Within that, I am very hopeful. One of the things Agape is saying, uh, this partnership, like I mentioned, with Pursuit of God Church in uh, Bellevue Baptist, which is the largest Southern Baptist church in the world, We created a partnership between the two of them. And there's a whole story there that has led to phenomenal deeper work going on in partnership with Agape and these other partnerships. What if we had 120 of these churches, Pursuit of God churches throughout Memphis that are bedded within them, these holistic resources, so that when this mom and her two boys come to the church or in that neighborhood, that they have answers. That prayer can respond to around school, around education, around trauma, around life matters that really can make a difference. And um, what might that look like? And so we we are aggressively trying to move forward with how do we how do we help grow and develop that in our deep partnerships and relationships and with much all the things going on in Memphis. It's not a solo job. It's not agape doing it by herself. But that's one thing that we bring to the table. What might Memphis begin looking like? How might that begin responding some, we mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. to some of, the, some of the woes that he had, very rightfully so, as he wrote from the Birmingham jail, especially of white uh, churches and moderates. How might we be able to speak truth and truth and be truth and truth in a way that is very practical, very on the ground, very relational in nature, provides hope and holistically serves fighting poverty together. And so that it becomes a we, it's not us, it's not them, We're in proximity, we're in relationship together, and we're walking with each other.
0: Curious, when you describe the two folks at that school that serve those boys with trauma from the carjacking, Mm -hmm. are they full-time agape staff persons assigned to that school? or Are those people that are at a counseling center or at some other center that then volunteer their time?
1: Yeah, it's staff. And so, so we have uh, anywhere from two to four staff, we call them connectors, in each of the 17 schools, kindergarten to 12th grade, that our kids go to uh, live, from where they live, Fraser, Whitehaven, Hickory Hill. And so, so we, we've got about 130 staff. Uh, many of them are connectors. And so there are a range of life matters that they're addressing holistically serving a family so we do have volunteers and volunteerism once we come out of the pandemic we've had up to a thousand volunteers serving in a variety of way but we do have staff as a core especially being in these places like in schools
0: and so this is where the argument's made we've got the system we've got the processes resources will be utilized and stewarded if you have a love and a passion for this work and you want to make a difference come on but let's use what we've already got here and we can create more of an impact and maybe trying to recreate the wheel. I mean, is that a valid point of yeah. discussion whenever you're meeting with key people from organizations really trying to get their support and alignment?
1: Yeah. 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 So, so what evidence shows that what you're doing is working and that's a critical point. And so are you evidence-based, evidence-informed? Do you have data to, to uh, inform that? And do you have transformational, kind of experiences stories and otherwise, that it would also kind of uh, give color, if you will, uh, to the story itself. There's data that shows that um, working at a place-based, where people live, is the most effective way. And what happens within a, a half mile radius of somebody's home, so one mile diameter, is what impacts largely that family. And so if you're not working that granular, that on the ground with families, then having impact at a scalable level in a neighborhood with multiple families is just not going to be true. We have found that to be very true for Agape. And so there are so many one mile diameters across Memphis, obviously, that we need to be able to go. And so we've got to scale this work and go deeper. And I believe in a very organic place-based where people live, walking alongside and bringing the resources alongside and impacting systems as
0: we do that, last question I have, and I just I don't want to end without asking, but how do you manage your time in your day to day with raising money, meeting these these new relationships, trying to get things done with these relationships, these partnerships, and then also with your organization? Just how do you how have you learned how to focus on the most important priorities, how to react to things that happen that are unexpected? But kind of do that day in, day out, because I would seem somebody in your position is if you're all in on the internal kind of workings of the organization and all the things going out in the field and all the fires kind of popping up, you don't get out there and raise money or you don't get out there and meet these new partnerships, these new relationships. But obviously, for any of us that have either owned a company or been a part of an organization. If you're aloof, then that's where problems happens too. So I'm just curious, where where we end here? How have you learned to
1: kind of manage all that? Uh, you're you're assuming I have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, is uh, when I came to Agape, there were six staff, including me. We're now at, at almost 130. For some organizations, that not, that's not very big, but you know, for us, that's sizable. So, for me, my job has continued to change. And so, I've had to be a learner and to continue to change what it means to be a CEO of an organization at different levels. Uh, and as we become more community oriented and engaged, and I've got some great staff I have an executive team, my COO, my CIO, my CFO, we have chief human resource officer, chief spiritual health officer, um, and then a leadership team under them. And so, we've grown. I have, I think, a, a good infrastructure to do and lead uh, the work. And so while I'm talking a lot about it, uh, don't, don't assume I'm doing all that. Uh, I've got I've got some great leaders and team members, I, I think the best in the country uh, and, and it's a unified group. So uh, so we've grown, we continue to grow into the role and as we continue to change and we do pretty dynamically as an organization, we have to continue to be challenged. What does it mean now, David, to be the CEO of this now organization? Cause it's now once again, changed a little more.
0: Yes, sir. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. And I've had an absolute blast. And also just so thankful for your work. And I've learned so much.
1: Sam, thank you. I have enjoyed being with you. Thank you for the interview. It has been a blessing and a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show. Follow me on social and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast.